Here we go, April the 5th, 2014, lecture discussion number 150 on the book of Romans. And today is going to be the beginning of the transitioning back uh, to the book of Romans in the more traditional sense. What I mean by that is that our diversion into the invisible attributes of God, uh, Romans 1.20, that is, of course, where he says his creation, he gave it to us um, so that we can find him in it. All we have to do is study what he made and you will find him. We can understand him by studying the things that he made. And the things, of course, we be things. We're things. That includes us. Uh, he, again, it's his evidences, his proofs. He's revealing us to himself, or, or I'm sorry, revealing himself to his created us by how he built this physical reality. So if you want to study it, if I run into people all the time and they tell me, I just can't figure out where God is. Well, he told you, Romans 1.20, start studying what he made. Read his word, study what he made. And if you'll do that, um, you will find him. By the way, he says everyone is without excuse for rejecting him because he's put so many proofs, so much evidence around. You cannot possibly stand before him and say, you never talked to me, you never showed me anything. He just buried us in information. Will you look is the question. So we've been on this trek uh, the last few weeks because of the Nyham debate uh, following God's footprints, uh, the popcorn trail, if you will. And that's going to slide into the background in the weeks to come. Um, and we're going to move uh, back into Romans and specifically Romans 9. Uh, I brought that up a few weeks ago and um, uh, intentionally because I knew that's where I would go next. I'm going to jump ahead a little bit and get into Romans 9 because it has some controversial elements to it and a lot of really cool stuff. It's got the Pharaoh, and I love the Pharaoh. So I want to get to that uh, before we completely run through into the problem of the summer. And uh, for those of you folks on the Internet, there's a possibility, and in fact, a very it's definitely going to happen will suspend for probably a month because the building that we're in, it will be uh, rendered non-occupiable. It'll lose its occupancy uh, status uh, because the roof is uh, in structural uh, chaos, for lack of a better word. So anyway, uh, Romans 9 is on the horizon, and, and I'm going to start it a little bit today uh, so that uh, uh, I can get it up to speed next week. And nonetheless... We're still going to be doing what we have been doing for quite a while with respect to general relativity and space-time and such because I believe that if you can become literate in the fundamentals of theoretical physics, that is one of the great proofs that God has given us. If you can just get, get, a, get a little bit of it, it's a lifetime pursuit. You'd be stunned at how much reading material there is for you. If you just get a little bit of it, then the reward is Romans uh, 1.18 through 20. Seeing God in his creation, you will know that he did it. You will know how he did it, and you will know why he did it. And, and it's so comforting, again, that, from that. The, the assurance that you get, the hope that, that you, you know that you have eternal life. Abraham asked that great question in Genesis 15.6 through 8. How can I know that I'm going to have eternal life? He didn't ask, how can I feel I'm saved? That's Galatians 3, 5 through 7. Paul said that was a question about Holy Spirit through Paul. That's a question about salvation. How can you know you're saved? 
The assurance of salvation, very important. All of us, we get into turmoil and we get into crisis and trauma and despair and we all doubt everything. We're just as weak, pathetic as we can be. Boneless chickens, that's us. But the more you know about what he made and what he said, the stronger you get. The Bible tells you what he says and then he confirms it by what is in the physical reality around us. What kind of person he is. That's very important. That, by the way, is the crux of Romans 9. What kind of person is God? As an added bonus, um, once you have this theoretical physics fundamentals down, and, and again, I don't expect you to delve into it to, to any great level. I just want you to know, hey, if I run into some academic, uh, some atheistic academic a scientific thinker, and he mocks Scripture, you will be in a position to refute it because the position that is in Scripture prevails. That's why it's so important to understand time dilation and, and the speed of light and uh, gravitational waves and cosmic background radiation and inflation theory and all of these cosmological things that are out there so that you can begin to deal with the constant barrage of attack that comes onto Scripture, especially for your kids and your and your grandchildren, it's great value to you. I have a I have people that tell me and write me all the time. I don't know what the answer is, but I know there's somebody that knows what the answer is. That's helpful. Uh, that's okay. I'll let you get away with that for a while, but eventually it's got to be you. You have to know what the answer is. That's why I'm not going to discard uh, all of this very difficult, uh, as it was described to me recently, painful to listen to material because it is so valuable and so comforting. I was telling uh, uh, Troy and, and Nellie, who I believe was named after Nellie Bly. She may not believe it. But... Uh, but my point is, is I was telling them that I have gone to do these kinds of things in front of college-level physics classes, and I lost them all. They all hit the ground. There wasn't a survivor in the class. They all, there was no insomnia. Down went Frazier, every single one of them. And it is not the material. It is the presenter of the material. This stuff is fascinating when you see it done. And it requires, I'm doing it as a lecture-based system without the multimedia and all of that stuff is available. You can see pictures of all of this now. And it's, like I said, an extraordinary thing. And I just cannot say enough how valuable the ability to be literate and functional, if you will, conversationally functional in these kinds of things is. And, and as, a, as a pastor or a teacher, when I was teaching in high school, I always imagined what it would be like if the churches could send forth an army of Isaac Newtons. If we, we had devout Christians with great 
biblical understanding, the knowers of the deep things of the, of the Scripture, the people who could find Christ on every page of the Old Testament, and you coupled that with, uh, uh, with the studies of the physical laws of God. And the church sent those people to the university systems by the thousands instead of what we're sending now. What are we sending now? We're sending children to these universities to be devoured and they're being massacred. And what they're being massacred with is essentially spitballs. There's nothing to it. But I wanted the church, uh, that was my vision when I was a young man, thousands and thousands of George Washington Carvers. Uh, That's what I thought would be a great idea. Why isn't the church doing that? I don't know. I do know. That's not true. I do know why. There's no money in it. It is to, To do it right is to do it without any economic benefit. That's how it is, and I'm sorry to say the church today focuses on the economic viability. Okay, I have a note here. Instead, the, the church is focused on the simple, and that's that attachment. Proverbs one twenty two: loving the simple is an economic benefit, and it's a shame. So, all of that to say, we're going to continue every Sunday for quite some time. I'm going to make you trudge through uh, time dilation and gravitational force or gravitational phenomenon, which would be a more correct uh, relativistically correct way of putting it, and that's something you'll have to know, R.C., you'll have to learn to say relativistically correct, because we don't necessarily speak that way, and it's something to be aware of. But uh, gravitational phenomenon and uh, quantum gravity theory and, and general relativity and all that stuff, et cetera, et cetera, every week for the next probably, oh, I imagine I'll go all the way through the summer before I stop until I'm confident that at least uh, if somebody raises it to you at a restaurant or in a movie line or uh, whatever, you'll be able to say, well, you know, that's not relativistically correct. And instantly they fall asleep. It's like being a hypnotist. It's amazing. Anyway, <laughs> I'm going to today, as an aside, I'm going to make the case eventually, and I hope today, it's way back here on pages 13 and 14, that puts it at... Uh, that puts it at word number 5,000. But uh, I'm going to try to make the case, I will make the case um, some today, that all discussions of gravity lead quickly to an absolute observer. An absolute observer is somebody that sees all things. And that tells you who he is right off the bat. He is somebody who is outside of time and is so large he can see. He's, his size, his immensity, if you will. People talk to me about my immensity, my girthitude, but that's not the same. He is so large that he has absolute observation. And the observation effect in quantum physics, very important to know about. Uh, observer in, in relativity, very important. Frame of reference, very important. All of that is critical in physics. And, and Isaac Newton um, proposed that there was an absolute observer. I think that he is correct. And all discussions of gravity, time, light, end up with this absolute observation element. But of all those of time and light and gravity, gravitational theory is, goes immediately to God's throne. 
So the more you know about gravity, the more powerful you will be in, in any of these kinds of discussions. How many discussions did you have about gravity when you went through school? How interesting that gravity doesn't seem to be discussed much. We see, uh, we have a little bit of it. Newton's laws, perhaps. But I will tell you that the more you know about gravity, the more you, the faster you get to God's throne, which is why it's so important to your children to learn all the issues of gravity. And we're going to get to that a little bit today. But first, we're going to start with Romans chapter 9. And I received a couple of letters uh, that uh, brought three that are representative of the mail I got this last ten days or so. Uh, well, maybe two weeks now I've been saving them. They've built up. I've gotten more mail in the last two weeks than uh, than any two-week period that I've ever had. And so I got quite a few letters. And again, these are representative. One is uh, Glenn from Texas. Uh, one is... Shannon from Texas, and one is Rand from Illinois. Now, Glenn from Texas and Shannon from Texas, they know each other. Uh, they are uh, delegates from uh, Cliffside Corporate uh, Texas Division, which, unbeknownst to us, apparently is uh, located in Anna, Texas, which caught my eye. Uh, it seemed that they might have named that uh, for my daughter, Anna. So I assume that it's filled to the brim with red-headed redhead, red girls. Perhaps it's a facility that confines them. And therefore, uh, no one will ever go there. <laughs> uh, I should say as an aside, Sharon from Texas, whom you know, and Mark from Texas, whom you know, and Jim from Texas, uh, who also has written, and we've read some of his letters, are, of course, they're not affiliated with this uh, Texas group that I have here. Uh, they uh, have their own autonomous, independent uh, Texas association. All of that to say we here in Alaska are greatly outnumbered by just Texas. <laughs> so Alaska cliffside, we would be voted uh, into, the, uh, into this, uh, I'm sorry, uh, voted into non-existence just by the state of Texas. They, they could take us over. And that doesn't even mention California and Arizona and Canada and Great Britain and South Africa and Pennsylvania and the 20 to 30 other locations that are out there. It's amazing. You folks on the Internet, you stun me. I don't even know what to say. So I'll just shut up. It is a good thing that we hide so well up here in Alaska and we hide so well because we hide in the snow and we hide in the rain and the dust and we hide in the swarms of mosquitoes and we hide under our desks or whatever doorways in the earthquakes and the volcanic ash and, of course, the tiny stinging gnats that we have here. And, uh, and did I mention snow and did I mention that Anna has red hair? So be afraid. I'm confident that no one's going to come looking for us. We're safe for now, though we do have this little NSA thing going on. <laughs> okay, enough of that. Well, I want to read Glenn and Shannon and Rand pieces of it so that you understand what we're doing. Notice how I have to read. I've put my glasses on my head. 
This is Glenn from Texas. Dear Pastor Chronister, I've listened to well over 200 and probably closer to 300 of your lectures. Now, don't you all feel sorry for him? Yes, most of them more than once. Now, for sure, you feel sorry for him. Your insight has been invaluable in keeping me out of the ditch with the rest of the shallow students of Scripture. Okay, at least out of the ditch for the most part. Okay, at least out of the ditch as much as I used to be. I was listening to Romans Lecture 147 as I was about to write this and was excited to hear you introduce Romans 9 and the potter and the clay, vessels for glory and vessels for destruction, etc. Perhaps you intend to cover this in some depth depth soon. Yes, I know that could mean up to and including three years. These are the kinds of people that we that listen to us. Are you surprised? But it could not. If not, could you please help me sort through it? That passage, along with Ephesians 1 and Romans 8, where Paul uses the term predestined and elect, have been difficult for me and our group ah, to get a handle on. You probably just received a note from my friend Shannon, who is asking a similar question regarding some of the text we've been studying uh, from A.W. Pink. If I understand Pink's position correctly, I am left with this question. If we have the free will to choose him, or said another way, the free will not to not reject him, is it good or bad that we choose him? If it is good, I think it would be hard to argue the contrary. But how does that fit with none do good, no, not one of Romans 3? I know they must fit. They're just, there must be, uh, I'm sorry, there just seems to be some space-time dilation between the dots I'm trying to connect. Thank you in advance for the assistance. (laughs) Uh, Wonderfully written, Glenn. Uh, Here is um, Shannon from Texas. Pastor Chronister, hello uh, to you from uh, Texas. Thank you for your teaching. You have opened my eyes to the many treasures in the Bible. I've been listening to you for over a year now, and my faith and understanding is growing again. Thank you. I have included a check to help with the buffet. Maybe some barbecue is in order. You know, Texas and all. You do have barbecue in Alaska, I hope. Someone from Alaska once rubbed my everything is bigger in Texas nose in it one day, saying that they might lobby to break Alaska into two states and make Texas number three in size. That's a that's an old joke, and we know it's true, Shannon. We've been talking about it for 40 years. Anyway, he goes on to say that he has read uh, uh, Arthur Pink. And listen, I, I love Arthur Pink. Uh, I really do. He was a, a deep thinker. Um, uh, his position on the Antichrist, absolutely unassailable. His, um, his work in Genesis, gleanings in Genesis, gleanings in Exodus, Elijah, to name just a few, uh, wonderfully done. But he was reading foreknowledge, Shannon said he was reading foreknowledge of God, and when I read chapter 5, the supremacy of God, my head started to spin. Pink's discussion of attributes, foreknowledge, and supremacy are very eloquent and convincing, but I've heard your discussion about the elect, and if there, if there are elect, then logically there would be unelect, and you have to follow that line of thinking back to God being the author of sin, and we end up with a daycare in hell. And that was beautifully said, um, uh, Shannon. So he wanted me to also uh, delve into this, um, and uh, we're going to do so. He goes on to say, I feel less confident in my position after reading uh, Mr. Pink, and uh, and he thinks he's misunderstanding uh, Charles Ryrie. And again, Charles Ryrie, uh, another a brilliant thinker. I, I'll just say this about everybody that uh, that 
makes an attempt, including me, we don't always get it right. Well, except for me. Uh, but it doesn't mean that what they wrote, what they wrote is necessarily, uh, listen, you just have to kind of weed through stuff sometimes and take out the very valuable and set aside the things that they may have struggled with. And Mr. Pink struggles a little bit in this area. I'm going to try to help him. He doesn't need my help now. He's sitting inside the throne room. Uh, he's in the, in the heaven making fun of me like the rest of them. But anyway, uh, uh, what he did was so extraordinary and so valuable. His devotion, uh, I give him a pass. I give everybody who died uh, a pass because... Uh, you just do the best you can. And now this one from Rand, uh, from Illinois. Dear Mr. Chronister, thank you for making your sermons available on the Internet. I have been edified greatly by listening to them. I originally found your series on Judges 19 after speaking with someone at my church. And this is in, I don't know if I should say, but it's in, uh, it's a town that I've not heard of in Illinois. But So there's at least two of them in that church. How long before they kicked them out? I know that's what you think. Uh, <laughs> I have since listened to everything that Cliffside has made available on Sermon Audio. I also now download the sermons from the Cliffside website. Additionally, I ordered the entire Genesis 1 through 19 series. I appreciate your insistence that uh, Jesus is always God and never not God. I also appreciate your reference to John 5:39, your exposition of Christ in the Old Testament. I do have some questions. You teach that God never does evil. I mentioned this to someone at church, and the next week they brought me several scripture references where it seemed that God says he will do evil. It took him a week, apparently, to find them. And he's absolutely right. They seem to say that to people who, don't, who won't study. He mentioned specifically Amos 9.4 and Micah 1.12. I'm not very familiar with these books and verses. How do you reconcile these verses with the fact that God is pure good? And Rand, we're going to take that on. We're going to start right now. See, all three of these letters are in the parentheses uh, of the same subject. And that subject is, exactly as Rand said, is God the author of evil? The same as Shannon. Do we have a daycare in the lake of fire? Because God has sent ch infant children there. Um, is, uh, and so if, if God, all of it, it's the same. Is God the author of evil? Is therefore God able to judge sin? If he's evil, can he judge sin? Is he, if he's the person that puts sin into us, does he have the right then to hold us accountable for it? So does man have any accountability? All of that is the same subject. All those letters, those three letters, and the others that I got, and I apologize to you folks that write that I didn't select yours. I have a tendency to select the ones that are the funniest. No, I'm kidding. I'm, uh, it's only half a joke. So Romans 9, what is this about? What is the Holy Spirit through the Apostle Paul saying in Romans 9? And we don't have time to read Romans 9 completely in its entirety, just enough to read the hard verses and do a first, uh, uh, do a really fast, uh, assessment of them today. So let's do that. And we'll read Romans 9, 12. I have the lights off on stage. Now, maybe we can turn them on since we're not looking at the overhead. Give me a little light up here because I'm old and blind and I fall down a lot. 
That's going to work. Thank you. Romans 9.12 is where we'll start through 15. It was said to her, the older shall serve the younger. It said to Rebecca by God, as it, as it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. Now, the first thing that you cannot do is anthropomorphize. You cannot put your human hatred into that verse because that's God saying something. That'll help you right off the bat. You don't go blue the bear on me. You know what I mean by that? Putting human characteristics where they don't belong in the sense of jungle book on a bear who will eat you. I can get one here if you'd like to find out. Don't anthropomorphize that. But also don't assume, by the way, that uh, hated is necessarily defi- is necessarily the correct word. What are you going to have to do now? A word study in the Hebrew, that's an Old Testament verse. You're going to have to go a word study and find out what the Hebrew meant when he said that, because he, the Holy Spirit wrote it through him. But again, Jacob I have, I have loved, but Esau I have hated. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? In other words, is God what? Evil. Certainly not. Let me say it again. Is, there, is God evil? Certainly not. So if you think he is, what's your problem? Get to work. Start figuring out why you would think something that isn't possible for one. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. Where's that in the Bible besides here in Romans? Well, you can look in your little, don't you have the little numbers on the side? Don't expect me to do it all for you. So then it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. Now, let's go to 920. But indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing, that is us, we are things, will the thing formed, that is us, we are the thing formed or the made things, say to him who formed it, why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? Now, a lot of uh, controversy on those verses. And I will tell you, almost without, uh, without, let me consider my words carefully. Without exception, it is rare that I find somebody who reads those verses that knows it to, what it means. Almost every interpretation, every cursory interpretation, which is the most common, is just plain wrong. And so, uh, know that about those verses at least. If that's all you get out from me today before you fall asleep, uh, then that'll be fine. And again, it is my job. If I am a successful pastor and you come here tired, I am guaranteeing to put you to sleep so you can get some rest and go about your day. Tomorrow, I consider that uh, just part of the part of the job description, and I'm very good at it. But let's talk about what this means. Okay, so first Paul is discussing something in Romans 9. And what he is discussing, uh, since I don't have time to go back and show you, he is talking about the rejection of Christ by the nation of Israel. That's the context. 
And within that context, he brings up a bunch of people. He brings up Abraham, he brings up Isaac, he brings up Sarah, Rebekah, Jacob, Esau, Moses, and Pharaoh. So all of those have something to do with the rejection of Christ by the nation of Israel, because, again, that's the context. And they have something very specific to say, and they have, so individually and collectively, they all have individual things to add and a collective uh, total to add to the rejection of God by the nation of Israel. And Paul, these are Paul's countrymen, and he starts Romans 9 uh, with, I weep for them, and I am in continual grief in his heart. So when you read, uh, say, Romans 9.21, you've got to place Romans 9.21 in the context, which is the rejection of Christ by the nation of Israel, for whom Paul weeps. Now, as you know, many teachers of Scripture and leaders of various denominations, they don't ever put Romans 9.21, the potter and the clay, or the Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated, or I will have compassion on whoever I will have compassion. They do not put those in the context of the rejection of Christ by the nation of Israel. This is Matthew 13. They don't put it in a Matthew 13, 12 and 13 context. They say what? And you probably said the same thing as you read it. They say that those verses are all about what? They say they're all about your and my and everyone else's individual salvation. Are they right? No. Does it stop them from saying it? No. Do they care that they're not right? No. What do they get out of being not right? That's right. You guys know the universal sign now. They get a whole lot more people than we get. And usually those who contend such, you see, it's a, it's a control mechanism. And listen, I can't say this enough. If you see somebody that seeks to control you, throw your chair at them and run for the parking lot. Get out of there. The whole back row left, just so you can, uh, those of you on the internet. <laughs> okay, usually the people that contend that this is about individual salvation, your salvation, they, they also conclude, have concluded that all of us are not created equal. We're not created on equal terms. Some are created for salvation and others for damnation. And that's why they were created. And neither the saved, they will say, nor the damned have any free will at all. They have no option. So, especially so for the condemned. The condemned, they will tell you, are created solely to be tormented for eternity and there was no possibility of anything else ever. That's what they teach. And you're right, that's a difficult premise to assert or defend. Let me read you R.J. Spruill Jr. You probably know him. This is what he says. He sums this up, this kind of thinking up, with this quote that's attributed to him. But you will find this oh, this wording almost everywhere throughout the people that say that Romans 9, those verses that I read you specifically, 9, 20 through 21 and 12 through 15, are about individual salvation. This is what they say. R.C. Spruill, Jr., 
God desired, and I quote, God desired for man to fall into sin. God created sin. So God desired man to fall into it because God created it. That's what he says. And that's very, very common. I could find 20 churches in Anchorage that believe this and teach it. And God, therefore, is what? The author of evil. Let me go back. Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. You would think they would notice that. But they say God is the author of evil. God has unrighteousness in him. And they say it often. And they wrote it. It's in all of their works. Go all the way back. Hundreds of years and find it. And God, therefore, is the author of evil for those who promote this view of this position. Now, I've covered this often before, as you know, uh, and asking always when I do the same kinds of questions, I'll try to ask a different one. If God is evil, and Satan, by the way, says that, that's what Satan says as part of his lie that he went from angel to angel to angel with, the abundance of his traffic, that's the first lie of Satan, that God is the author of evil and there is no free will. And some of us are condemned and some of us are not. We were created to be. That's all Satan's lie. It's all inside of it. And therefore, God cannot judge and there will be no judgment. How can the one who placed evil into us and is responsible for its origin, how can he have a trial where we're held accountable? That is the problem that Satan promoted. That's the Matthew 4 issue. But anyway, if all of us, if God is evil and all of us are automatons, all of us are robots, and they will say to you that man, you, me, we cannot even will to sin. We have no will. We're a total, complete robot. We can't even decide to sin. If sin comes into our mind, where did it come from, they say? From the one who created it, God. That's the view. How are you liking it so far? What do you think, Jakey? Yeah, he doesn't like it either. (laughs) So let me ask this. If we're all automatons and we can't even will to sin, no will, no options, then and God is evil, then what position are you in? What position let's say you're on the saved side. The condemned people, they just go, Okay, I'm condemned, see you later. What about the saved people? What position are you in? You're in a position where you have to trust who? An evil God. The the originator of evil. You have to trust him for what? To save you. You have to trust him to fulfill his promise of salvation. Remember, you're a robot. You you don't even have existence. You have nothing. You You can't will to sin, you can't will to do anything. You have no will. And evil, by definition, if you say God is evil, that's marinated. Evil is marinated in lies. It's marinated in deception, betrayal, and wicked acts. So you are trusting someone who is wicked to do what? To fulfill his contract to save you. How are you feeling? How safe are the saved if Christ is evil? And you should see Pascal's Wager. Remember that? They would, a few weeks ago, I hope those of you who were here for Pascal's Wager will go back to it here as the weeks come about. You can see how it reappears right here. 
because they discredit the choice. They say, I don't have to make a choice because Christ is evil. God is evil. That is what they say. So this doctrine is on the same side as atheism. It's remarkable. You should pay attention to who agrees with you sometimes. If you find the evolutionary atheists agreeing with you, you should go, well, oops. If you have the if you have the atheists that say we cannot uh, we don't have to make a choice because uh, the God of the Bible is evil, uh, then uh, again you should uh, redirect your energy. So, to repeat, where is the assurance of salvation? How can we know? Abraham's great question, fifteen six Genesis. How can we know fifteen eight? How can we know we're saved if God is evil? You can't know anything. He can be lying to you constantly. It's hopeless. There is no assurance of salvation if God is the source of evil. And once again, where we're going to go, we're going to find ourselves dealing with Isaiah 5.20 and 2 Peter 3.9 and Hebrews 9.27 and 1 John 3.23 and Matthew 25.14.3.30 or more specifically Matthew 25.24, which is where the lie of Satan is, is put on into Scripture again. And Luke 19.13 through 27 and uh, once again, specifically Luke 19.21, that's the accusation that Satan makes against God. And Matthew 26, 50, 36 through 52, and Genesis 15, and Matthew 4. Matthew 4, again, is where the challenge of Satan is destroyed by Christ. And as soon as Christ destroyed this challenge against God, that God was evil or the author of sin or had no solution to sin, as soon as Christ did that, what happened? Angels came down and ministered to God. How do angels minister to God? They believe him. Same way you minister to God. How is God ministered? How do you minister to God? You're obedient to believe Him. Now rattle off a bunch of stuff that was really for the internet people. Because they can rewind and go back and forth and get it. And you've heard them all. I know you have. And I'll go over them in the weeks to come. Matthew 25, 21 and Luke 19, 17 both have this phrase. It's the parable of the talents or the minas, whichever wish one you happen to go to, and it says, faithful in very little, because you have been faithful in very little. Let me put that on the board. Very little. You have been faithful in very little because they took the talent, right? And what did they do with it? He gave them all a talent and one guy buried it, right? The others went out and did what? They took it and they multiplied it. And he said, because you have been faithful in very little, I will give you what? A great reward. And the reward is so great. And what they did was so small. God is saying to his good servants there in that parable, you were faithful in very little and there's this great reward that comes. And obviously, what do we need to do now? We need to figure out how little is very little. You were faithful in very little. And obviously, or more obviously, this begins us on the path to defining the limits of our free will. Certainly, we possess limited free will. The question becomes, how small, how limited is it? How little? Let's try another question. 
Is there a distinction between obeying the commandment to believe in the name of Christ? That's John 1, 1 John 3.23, sorry. 1 John 3.23 is where the commandment is. It's an order, it's a military form. He is ordering you as your officer in command, your commanding officer, to obey this commandment that he is giving you, and the commandment is to believe in the name of Christ. Is there a distinction between obeying that commandment, and this is Glenn's question now, and the Romans 3.12 declaration that there is none who does good, no, not one. He orders you to believe. He orders you to obey his commandment to believe. Is there a distinction between that and Romans 3.12, that there is none who does good, no, not one? In other words, is obeying the commandment from God to believe him equivalent to a physical property? Does that make sense? You see how I got you back into quantum physics now? In Romans 4, there is this fantastic separation that God does. He puts believing him or believing God uh, on one side, and he puts him who works on the other side. Believing God is is positioned in the absolute opposite of him who works. So he sets it up. You can either believe me for salvation, or you can do your own work for salvation. And if you try to do your own work, what will happen? Believing God is accounted for salvation. If you believe God, you will be saved. That takes you back to 1 John 3.23. If him who works, if you try the work path, what's going to happen? Failure. It's debt. So obeying the commandment to believe is, is at its essence a spiritual property which contrasts to a physical act of work, which is a physical property. That, uh, I wrote duh after that. Now that I read it, I understand why I wrote duh. Okay. Let's repeat the question we asked about Romans 9.12 and Romans 9.21. In Romans 3, if I believe God, it's accounted to me for salvation. If I go out and I try to work for my own salvation, it becomes just doing stuff. Gets me nowhere. It's, It's still debt. I cannot do something. I have to believe something. That's why Ryrie, to, to quote him again, if a sermon is any good, it's one that asks you to believe something. Never asks you to do something. So if Romans 3 and Romans 4 is about our salvation, well, I, this is my question. Is Romans 3 and Romans 4 about our salvation? I'm going to say, yes, it is. And if it is, if Romans 3 and Romans 4 is about our salvation, how about Romans 9? Is it about salvation? I don't think it is. I think it's about something else. It has something to do with the nation of Israel. So if you try to make Romans 9 about individual salvation and try to compare it to Romans 3 and 4, you're going to be in a position where they don't fit together, which is very common. Don't equate them as both being in the context of individual salvation. If you do, that's going to open the door to error and into the ditch we would go, to quote Glenn from Texas some more. I submit that this is the common result with respect to Romans 9. It is not about individual salvation. It is about God putting Israel into service. Paul uses three primary examples when he's discussing his beloved nation of Israel. Jacob and Esau. 
Pharaoh, potter and clay. And how those three explain the nation of Israel and their calling, what they were supposed to do. They were supposed to do a couple of things. What, just to boil it down. They were supposed to believe God, accept him as king, as Messiah, and then do what with that? Take it to the Gentiles. How'd they do? Circling the drain, baby. That's what Romans 9 is about. And the three, Jacob and Esau, Pharaoh, and Potter and Clay, they explain the nation of Israel and their calling to the Gentiles. Romans 9, 23, 24 will become very important in order to, to fit that to Romans 3 and Romans 4 together correctly with Romans 9. And of all of them, Pharaoh is probably the easiest to solve. So I'll do that. Esau and Jacob are pretty easy too. So is the potter clay. That's not hard. It makes perfect sense when you go about it correctly. But let's just take Pharaoh, because I like him the most. He's got a bunch of frogs. He's buried in frogs. It's one of my favorite stories. He's he's breathing frogs. Can't get any can't move. There's frogs everywhere. He's got a river full of blood previously. Now he's got frogs. And he gets, Moses says, you want me to get rid of the frogs? No. And I want to stay with him one more day. So I, don't, I just really appreciate that kind of thinking. And I want to know tomorrow. Get rid of the frogs tomorrow. I'll go ahead and spend one more night with the frogs. I find that fascinating. And we'll get into Pharaoh because he is an interesting man because of things like that. But God says to Moses in Exodus 3.19, that's the key to understanding Pharaoh. God says to Moses, I am sure, now this is God saying this, I am sure that the king of Egypt will not let you go. He won't let you go. So when you start the story with that, God starts off going, I am sure he's not going to let you go. So that fact alone places the hardening of the heart of Pharaoh. Notice the heart of Pharaoh hardening is going to be a key element in this uh, uh, Romans 9 discussion. So that fact that he that God is sure that the king of Egypt will not let you go places the hardening of the heart of Pharaoh into a more complex position. Because I always put myself, because I, I, I wonder why he's thinking what he's thinking and why he's doing what he's doing. So I put myself in position. I shaved my head. I look like Yul Brenner, And I'm the Pharaoh, right? And, and it wouldn't have taken me long to quit. I would have quit really, really fast. I might have got by the blood in the river. I doubt it, but let's say I do. Now I'm buried in frogs. And I, I'm. when am I going to give up? It kind of reminds me of, of SEAL Team 6 or any SEAL training. You know, you get that bell, you go up and you ring the bell and you get a hot shower and a, and a you know, bucket of Kentucky Fried Chicken, you're out of there. How long are you going to stay in that position before you ring the bell? I'm going to ring that bell as soon as they're drowning me. No offense. I don't like drowning. But the Pharaoh, he doesn't give in. I would have given in at the frogs. I don't like the tiny stinging gnats. Absolutely, when the biting blood-sucking flies come and bite off pieces of my flesh, and there's swarms and swarms of them, I'm probably raising, I'm ringing the bell, raising the flag. I'm out of here. You want to go, go. But God says he's not going to let you go. 
The Pharaoh was able to hold out for all ten plagues. I find that fascinating. None of you, none of me, nobody we know would have done that. He was able to do it. So now I ask the obvious question. The hardening of Pharaoh that God does. Where is it in the story? See, that begs the obvious question, doesn't it? Was the hardening of Pharaoh also containing an element to keep the Pharaoh strengthened to withstand the entire ten plagues so he would allow God to go all ten plagues? Because God had a plan with all ten. If the Pharaoh wants to quit on the second one, God's not going to let him quit. So we're going to go through all ten. So the hardening of Pharaoh has this, that element in it. You see, I'm going to need supernatural intervention to finish that obstacle course. There's no way I'm going to get through ten plagues. What made the Pharaoh so uh, resolute? That's the question. Anyway, we're going to continue that next week. But if you start thinking that way about the other two examples Esau and Jacob, as well as the potter and the clay, you will solve Romans 9. Now, I've got about five minutes left to conclude uh, gravitational force. Look at the excitement on their faces. Only 17 people out of 18 checked their watches. Last Sunday, I tried valiantly to impart Einstein's general theory of relativity as it applies to gravitational force or the gravitational phenomenon. Einstein did not believe gravity is a force. He did not believe that. He didn't think it was particle-based. Ultimately, we're going to have to decide if it really is particle-based. He saw it as a distortion of, of the fabric of space. Think of space, if you want, as, as, as water, as ten inches of water going all throughout the universe. And, and you have boats floating on the water. What will happen if boats float on the water after a while? They'll do what? They'll bang together. It's no different than you in, in a king-size bed. You'll find the dog. Bang into it. That's how it works. That's what he's saying, is, is that the mass of this, of the bodies, deflect, if you will, the membrane of space, the fabric of space. I called it saran wrap last week, but Einstein combined it, uh, or called it a membrane, and those bodies curve it or distort it or bend that membrane. And he called the fabric of space, he combined it with time, and he calls it all space-time. That's what that means. So under general, general relativity, gravitation is not a force, it's the warping or the curving of space-time. A consequence, uh, the, and, and therefore gravity is a consequence of this curvature that occurs when this mass is sitting into this membrane. An orbit occurs. So you gotta think of orbit this way. Look at it this way. There's my membrane. Here's my body sitting in there. So now I'm gonna draw a little bit different. I'll make it the, the, the hole a little bigger. That's the Earth. And the moon is trapped inside that dimple, if you will. Think toilet bowl. Okay, roulette wheel. That's what's causing the orbit. It isn't a force. It's the curvature of the uh, caused by the mass of another cosmic uh, body in this membrane, this space-time, this fabric of space, if you will. So orbit is actually a free-falling state. We talked about that last week. If this is the Earth and and I build a tower big enough, I can get. That and throw something off, I can get it to continually. As it's falling this way, what's happening to the earth? The earth is curving. So if I fall a foot, the earth is curving a foot, I stay in the same distance from earth. Does that make sense? 
really fast. I got it. But but you could see a free-falling state is what orbit is. And that, of course, lets you know. That's why there's weightlessness. There's no weightlessness because uh, uh, there's no gravity. We'll have to get into this discussion next week. There's, it appears that there's no gravity because everything is falling at the same place in a uniform or in, in a frame of reference that is uniform. Now, Isaac Newton, he had an alternate view on gravitation. Newton considered gravitation as an instantaneous force that had a mathematical relationship to mass and distance as well as acceleration. And Newton saw the gravitational phenomenon as the only force that acts on all particles with mass and that it has infinite range. So gravity to Newton was infinite and it was never repulsive. It's an attractive force. So he said there's a force out there that's infinite and it's attractive and you can't shield against it, he said. Nothing you can do about it. You can't protect yourself from it. You can't block it. So let's consider that description by Newton. It's a force that acts on all particles. It's an infinite force. It's an instantaneous force. It's always attracting. It's never repelling. And it cannot be shielded. You cannot stop it. Who's he talking about? Not what, but who. So what a tremendous thinking, devout man. Isaac Newton was. And obviously, that's why it's so important to know more about gravitational phenomenon, its origin, its makeup. Where did it come from? When did it come? What's it made of? How does it work exactly? How fast it is? And you see, there's a few problems right off the bat, because I have this tension, if you will, this existence of tension between Einstein's general relativity and quantum physics, quantum mechanics. They're incompatible. Oh, that's interesting. I have to harmonize general relativity, which describes gravitation with quantum mechanics. Uh, in other words, I have large-scale gravity and I have atomic-scale gravity. I have quantum gravity, little tiny particles. I have to determine, do, do they have gravity? It becomes necessary to now predispose things, presuppose things. See, I have to come up with uh, uh, massless particles now. And you heard that correctly. I, in order to make quantum physics work with general relativity, there must be massless particles. What is a massless particle? How do I have a massless particle? They seem to be impossible to uh, make that a consistent adjective or description. All of this is because we have to have a TOE. Do you know what a TOE is? You have one. I have one. Here's a mine. This is a TOE. Except ours is not a TOE. Ours is an EOE. But they want a TOE. They want a theory of everything. We have an explanation of everything. So they're constantly trying to find a theory of everything. When it's a lot of extra work, they could just read one. But that's what science is doing. It's in this headlong pursuit of a theory of everything. And so they have to presuppose massless particles. They call them gravitons, also known as messenger particles. And thus they have to come up with dark energy and dark matter 
because I can't explain how the universe is expanding or how it's moving or what it's doing. And so I've got to have other gravity sources and I've got to have other gra- gravitational energy and I've got to have all these other problems. So we come up with dark energy and dark matter and they're proposed. Do they exist? Every physics book you read will present them as if they exist. I'm going to present to you that they don't exist. They're not in my EOE. So I think they're made up. Because I'm not desperate to pursue a theory of everything. I think I have one. So uh, that's why dark energy and dark matter are proposed. Primarily to deal with gravitational radiation and gravitational phenomenon. So to sum it all up. There are four recognized forces. Gravitation. That's a holding or attracting force. There's electromagnetic. That's light, if you will. So right off the bat, you know, the first two are talking about who? Who says he's both of those? Christ does. He says, I'm the light. Electromagnetic is a light-based force. Gravitation is an upholding force. Hebrews 1 1 through 1 3, Christ upholds all things. He says, I'm both of these forces. Then I have the strong nuclear and the weak nuclear. What do you think is going to happen? He's going to say, I am the gravitational upholding force. He's going to say that in the Bible. He does. Hebrews 1 1 through 3. He's going to say, He is the light of the universe, the light of the creation. He says that all over the place. He's going to say that he's the strong nuclear force, and he's going to say that he's the weak nuclear force. Are you surprised? You shouldn't be. And you should know that the gravitational force, if you will, causes lots and lots of problems for astrophysicists. Uh, Gravitational time dilation, bending of light. And all they had to do is ask the guy that did it. He explains it to you, how it works, when he did it, why he did it, what's he going to do with it. I'm going to finish with David and Goliath because you need to know how this fits in in Romans 9. Goliath was this monster. Nobody could touch him. He comes out by himself in front of a huge army and he's going to kill all of Israel. And everyone in Israel sees this monstrous man and they say, he's, we can't beat him. There's nothing we can do. He's got a huge army behind him. He's the champion of this army that is coming to annihilate us. We have no hope. And Saul had no one to fight. You know the story, except a a shepherd who would eventually become king. So I'll call him the shepherd king. That's who fights. He comes out and he has a sling, essentially. And he has a smooth stone. He has five of them. That's interesting. We'll have to get into that at some point. And he's able to fling that stone at enough velocity, enough acceleration, where are we now, that it penetrates the helmet of Goliath and sinks into his forehead. But it didn't kill him, stunned him. But you start thinking about the uh, feet per second travel of that projectile, what it had to do to go through that helmet and go through that uh, forehead of Goliath. But again, I have this massive human being and he, as soon as he and uh, David comes out, picks up his sword and cuts his head off and buries it at the exact spot that Christ chooses to, 
put his cross, right? So he got all of that. But as soon as he cuts the head of Goliath off, what did that massive army do? They fled. So who's the first one killed? Goliath. First one killed. And killed how? Quickly, immediately, effortlessly. Now, go to the Christ and the Antichrist. The Antichrist has got what? A massive army behind him. He's the champion of the army. Nobody can deal with this guy. He's going to come and destroy Israel. And Christ comes and does what? Kills him. Effortlessly. With what? What's it say? Sword. What is the sword? It's a word. He utters a word and the Antichrist disintegrates into pink mist, if you will. And what does the army do when they see their Goliath, I'm sorry, Antichrist, same thing. What do they do when they see him go that quickly and that easily? They did not think it was possible. They were idiots. They were fooled. And the Antichrist knew he was fooling them. He knew he was going to go to pink mist immediately. He knew this is God. Come on, are you crazy? Yes. Not him, though. People following him. His whole point was to have what happen? God kill that army. That's what he wanted. Is where were they all going to go now? That's the plan. He wants second death. First death doesn't matter as much to him. But anyway, so you see the correlation between Goliath and the Antichrist and the armies. First one killed, the fleeing, all of that. Right? Got that? Now, I want you to think about Genesis 6 and the tribulation. What does this have to do with Romans 9? You're all asking. In the tribulation, I have to consent, don't I? In order to get the mark. I consent to get the mark of the Antichrist. In Genesis 6, do I have to consent in order to be contaminated? And that's where I will leave you. Do you know what that means? Anybody confused? Do I need to explain it? I have contamination. Not Noah. Noah was uncontaminated. I have to consent to get. No one's going to get the mark of the beast without consensual acceptance. That's a worship, a sign of worship. Do I have to consent at the time of the Noahic flood? As in the time of Noah, so shall the end of the age be. Let's rise and be dismissed.